Well, there is something powerful about being reminded that we were once lost and God found us. In fact, we started reflecting on that last week about the lost sheep and the lost coin. So the idea that there's a God out there who actually came and found you and I, that we were that important to him. Often you come across a story, right? It's a story of somebody who reminds you of what it looks like for God to find us when we're lost. Actually, I read a story recently about Selena Gomez. She was actually speaking at the Hillsongs conference, and she wrote a letter to herself, her 15-year-old self. And as she was reading this, she talked about how, what God had been doing in her life. She said to her 15-year-old self, you know, right now you have faith, but you don't know what you have faith in. But there's going to come a time on your 23rd birthday that you're going to finally get who God is, who Jesus is. And what you're going to have is going to be more real. More real than your fame, more real than your popularity, more real than even your friends. In fact, here's the quote she wrote. I think this is so powerful in describing the gospel. Selena, you are enough. Not because you've tried hard, not because you've loved hard or put on your best face. Not because you've been given a large platform and not because others tell you you're good enough. You are enough because you're a child of God who has been pursued from the very beginning. You are enough because his grace has saved you and covered you. You hear a story like that and if you're like me, two things well up in me. One, look at a God who found somebody lost in success and lost in fame and found what they really needed, grace. Then there's another part of me that's like, sure, right. Another Hollywood person trying Jesus on for a few months. I bet you this will last about a week, right? There's sort of that cynical side, just sort of like, you know, come on. Is that really genuine? Is that really sincere? How about this one? 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer. After killing, cannibalism, horrific things he did. He's on the news media And as he is talking about all of the things he's done and all the turmoil he's in, one of his quotes that day on the news was, I wish I could find just a little bit of peace. Kurt Booth was watching TV that day. Kurt had spent some time in prison for thievery, as he described it. And there's something about the experience he had with Jesus, Kurt did, his relationship with God in prison. He felt prompted to reach out to Jeffrey Dahmer, of all people. He sent him a note and they began to correspond in prison. He began to talk about a God who could forgive him, who still could have hope for him, who could still redeem him, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey began to respond. They began to email back and forth to the place at which while in prison, Jeffrey wrote a note back to Kurt and said, there's no place to get baptized here. Would you be willing to come and visit me in prison and baptize me? Kurt said, I sure will. And Kurt came. Jeffrey wrote, I I was so overwhelmed because I thought I was too sinful and too evil that anyone would want to come see me or help me find God. They baptized Jeffrey Dahmer. After baptizing him, he sent $5 worth of stamps back with his friend Kurt and said, could you send that, that Christian material you sent me to 25 of my fellow inmates? They need to hear this message too. And the same thing wells up in me. The power that God can forgive anyone And the sense of anger that some deathbed confession could make up for the horrific injustice and evil he's done. Because in some sense, I know we all need grace. In some sense, I know Jesus died for everybody. 
but I feel like I'm a little bit more forgivable than Jeffrey Dahmer. And I think I'm a little bit more authentic than Selena Gomez, right? And that spirit in you and me that feels like we're a little bit more forgivable, we're a little more authentic than other people, that's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. And it's not just for the, the big names, right? It's when you look at people in your life, you've got a son or daughter who's rebelling, and they're rebelling hard. And maybe you were a pleaser as a child. And you're thinking to yourself, and it's honest, you would never talk to your parents the way they're talking to you, and your, your heart is broken. Because you think, at some level, that you're a little bit more forgivable than that child. Sometimes it's the gambling uncle. <laughs> I would never gamble my money away. It's the alcoholic father. I can't believe that he struggles with this. It's the mother with depression. Why can't she just pull herself up by the bootstraps? It's the sister-in-law with the, with the rageaholic. It's maybe a literal younger brother who was the rebel. And you think, yeah, yeah, I love him or I love her, your younger sibling. But in one sense, if you're really honest with yourself, you feel like you're a little better than they are, a little bit more forgivable than they are, a little bit, you need God's grace, but not as much as they do. And what this parable Jesus is going to describe is going to really convict us with is that younger brother lives in us. The same person we're condemning, the same person we're looking down on, that younger brother, that rebel, it may come with a different flavor, but that younger brother lives in me. And the only way we're going to see the Heavenly Father accurately is if we see the younger brother in us accurately as well. Let's look at the younger brother in Jesus' story. It's interesting because Jesus is going to begin by saying the younger brother isn't out there for me to wag my finger at. He's actually in here. And it's when I realize he's in here, I can both bring grace and truth to bear in every situation. I want to give you three questions, and they're convicting questions that I think come out of this text. That begin to ask us whether or not we're being honest with our own rebellion against God. Because if you don't realize you've been lost, you're not going to care about the lost. Jesus begins his story coming out of the lost coin. He says, third story. A certain man had two sons. Now the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he, the father, divided to them his livelihood. Now in that culture, this was particularly offensive. I mean, it's offensive in general, but it's particularly offensive there because in that culture it was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get what I really want. It was a slap in the, fa- in the face. In that culture, the audience would suspect not that he would divide it up. The response of the father would be to smack him back. You've got to be kidding. Disown him, excommunicate him. This was so offensive. And anyone listening to the story would have thought to themselves, I would never do that. Anyone with dignity would never do that. Anyone with respect, anybody who had been trained morally would never do that. And maybe as you read that story, you think the same thing. I would never do that. I'm not the younger brother. Oh, no, I need forgiveness. But that? But here's the question. Do I use God to get what I really want? What does he really want? He wants the father to give him the goods. He's using his dad to get what he really wants, his inheritance. 
How often do you use God to get what you really want? Because if I'm honest all the time, oh, I love God, I appreciate God, I love God, but I really want God to give me a comfortable life, an easy marriage, obedient children, I want Him to have, give me good health. Now, hopefully you can have it all. Nothing wrong with wanting all those things, right? But here's the test to see if you're using God to get what you really want. What happens when that list of things you really want get bumpy? Suddenly, you becoming a Christian, you following God, and now your health isn't what you thought it should be. Now the kids aren't obeying the way you want them to be. Now you're not performing the way you thought God would allow you to perform. When things get bumpy and things get off track, what comes out of you? If I'm honest, a lot of stuff comes out of me I'm not particularly happy with. Do you have a sense that God owes you because of how well you've obeyed, how hard you've worked? In fact, depending on your personality, when God doesn't give you what you really want, maybe you fall into self-pity. I can't believe God would do this. I can't believe this is another example of just a black cloud over my head all the time. Nothing ever goes my way. And self-pity is a, a, a very subtle form of pride, saying, God, I know better what should happen, and I don't deserve this. Or maybe you're a performer like me. When you don't get what you really want, you perform really, really hard. You double down on your efforts to show God how worthy you are of the things you really want. As if you can manipulate God into getting what you really want. Whether you perform, whether you get angry or self-pity, it really begins to show you that do you love God for who He is? Do you want God for who He is? Or you just use Him to be a vending machine for what you really want? And all of a sudden I realize the younger brother isn't out there. He's in here. I've done that daily. I was talking to a friend recently. He goes to Horizon. And uh, he's got a son who just headed off to college and uh, this last semester. And he's excited about kind of finding out how his son's doing. But his son hasn't called much. But he's telling me a few weeks ago his son called back from college. And he's like so excited to hear from him. How are things going? Oh, dad, things are going great. This is happening and that's happening. And then the dad was incredibly surprised because his son asked him questions. How are you doing, dad? I'm doing great, fine. What have you guys been up to? Well, mom and I have been doing this or that. What are the brothers and sisters up to? What's happened to my son? Now, all of that lasted about three minutes. And then, what did he ask? By the way, dad, could I have some... Money! All that precursor was just set up because he ran out of cash. Now, God is so secure that God is willing to let us use him to get out of hell or get into heaven initially. But God is not going to continually to reinforce you using him to go after your real idol. Status, performance, appearance, money, good sense of self-worth, whatever it is. And so this... Dad was, was willing to have his son call because he wanted money, but he, he doesn't want to be a, a vending machine for his son. He wants to have a relationship with his son, right? So he said, by the way, Dad, I, I've been going to church recently. You've been going to church? Oh, it's awesome. Why? Oh, no, boy. <laughs> what brought you to that conclusion? He's like, well, you know, I ran out of money about a week ago. I couldn't get a hold of you, and they got free coffee at the church. So he started going to this church to get the free coffee, and he said, I stayed for a couple services. He's like, you stayed for the service? He's actually feeling kind of good about this. And he said, yeah, Dad, 
They don't make the Bible as easy to understand it as they do at Horizon, but it's actually pretty good. And they got into a good conversation. But how often have you felt that from a son or daughter or someone who used you to get what they really wanted? You go, how often have I done that to God? That's that inner brother in me. Rather than me judging the other younger brothers, how do I look at my flavor of that? The second question is, are my possessions hiding my poverty? Not many days after he gets the inheritance from his dad, the younger brother gathered all together. He journeyed to a far country. We're going to talk about that in just a second. And there he wasted all of his dad's possessions that are now his with prodigal living. And when he had spent it all, there arose a severe famine in the land. Now keep in mind, it's not like his dad's inheritance was sitting in a bank. In those days, it was your cattle. It was your sheep. So to liquefy his business, to be able to give half to his son, many, many people are out of work. Sheep herders and servants. He had to liquefy the business. Many people have been hurt by this decision. But the younger brother has his inheritance. He has what he really wanted, money and possessions. And how does he spend it? How does he utilize it? He wastes it. He spends it with prodigal living. And when he had spent all of it, there arose a famine in the land, and then he began to be in want. But here's my question. Did he just now begin to be in want, or has he always been in want? Have his possessions been hiding the fact that he's been in spiritual poverty the whole time? I want to propose to you that his possessions just simply hid the fact that he's been spiritually in want his whole life. Spiritually in want of what it means to be a son, what it means to know love, what it means to to respect, what it means to appreciate, what it means to understand a loving father, what it means to have gotten mercy and not be smacked upside the head by his dad for what he requested. Now, I think he's been in want his whole life. He's been in rebellion his whole life. He's been in disconnect his whole life. It wasn't until he ran out of money his want finally got exposed. Oh, what is my purpose in life? As we're going to see in a moment, what he has done to his father is what his friends have done to him. Because his friends, friends, used him to get what they wanted, access to his money for their prodigal living. And as soon as the money ran out, the friends ran out. And now he's tasting a little bit of what he did to his father. Are your possessions hiding your poverty? Are you aware of your own soul, the spiritual poverty in your own soul, your own need for God? We live in a culture that has so many ways to be distracted, so many ways to not be thoughtful, so many ways not to actually connect with God between busyness and work and and recreation and everything else. Are you in touch with your own spiritual poverty? Last year about this time, I went down um, to Florida to visit a friend of mine, Craig and Emily. They both own a rather large um, car business in Michigan. Yet they've decided to live down in this 1% of a 1% community. It's very hard to run their business from 10 states away, but they said here in this community, people spend their whole life Saving, 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 saving so they could live here in this place of ultimate comfort, ultimate pleasure, ultimate ease, ultimate catering. He said, as we've been living down here for the last couple of years, it's just filled with poverty. The lack of friendships, the lack of connection. Everybody thought, if I get here, I'll be happy. Now that they are here, 
They're not. And we get to hear stories every week about marriages falling apart, divorces, affairs, children, grandchildren with addiction. People are hurting. We're sitting there that evening, and it was a beautiful sunset, one of those beautiful sunsets, most beautiful places in the world. Everybody gathers together for cocktails and talks for about 10, 15 minutes before heading out for the evening. And he said, hey, I know most of these here are my friends. And this conversation around cocktails for 15 minutes is as close to friendship as most of these people have. And that's why we've decided we feel called to live here and amongst the community. Because all this, all these possessions are hiding poverty of a longing for purpose and meaning and friendship that God has for them. Now in this case, the poverty comes in the form of being out of money. But possessions can simply hide your poverty as well. What does it mean to be in far country? Well, I think for the audience, the Greek-Roman world, right across the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis, would have been on the mind of the reader or the listeners Jesus spoke. So I got a chance to go to Israel several years ago with Ray Vanderlund, and here's a quick clip of a video of him describing what it might have felt like to go to one of those lands in Israel where the audience would have pictured this young prodigal son going in what's called far country. Let's watch. So we left the father looking out the gate down the street as he watched his youngest son take his share and head off to a far country. So I would like to have us spend a bit of time imagining what would it have been like if we were that younger son who took our share of the father's household and showed up in a far country among the Gentiles as illustrated by Gerasa, today Jerash. Let's start with the gate. So like the prodigal, we entered the gate and began our journey into this far country, this place of Gentiles. We passed a 15 to 20,000 seat hippodrome, a chariot racing arena. Beautiful, wonderful condition yet. I'm sure in their minds the prodigal would have seen that. I don't know that that would have been a moment that would have uh, led him to question who he was and why he was here. Now we've come down the Cardo, the main street, and we've entered the Forum. It's oval, very beautifully oval with a row of columns all the way around the outside. Magnificent structure. Over here, the Temple of Zeus. Originally, Zeus had an open air, an outdoor shrine with a huge altar in the middle. Later, in the Roman time, a beautiful temple stood up on that hill above that open-air shrine. Originally, a dramatic staircase starting from the plaza went all the way up to that magnificent temple. And you can imagine that temple there. I think that says to me that the prodigal would have had one of those moments where, again, he's got his tassel. I'm a son of the king. I'm called to be a kingdom of priests. I'm to live a certain way for his reign. I'm to demonstrate what he's like to a broken world. And here, we say Zeus is Lord. Zeus is God. Above it, a magnificent theater. I don't know whether he would have in their minds gone into the theater, whether that would have been a time when 
what was put on there would have led him to question his belief system. But there are other temples in this town. And if you look far down, there's some very high columns in the distance. They stand as a reconstructed, original columns, but reconstructed temple of Artemis. Very near it, just in front of it, in fact, was the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine and of orgy. And now I think, in their minds at least, this prodigal faces another one of those choice moments. Because those religions, Dionysus in particular, raise issues of morality. Not only of the gods worship there, but for them, sexuality is part of life's pleasure and can be used in ways that the king would not approve of if the king is the one who told Moses on Sinai, wear tassels to remember to obey me. So here's the idea of what they would have pictured in these Roman Greek worlds that he would have started to participate in, serving other gods. But look at all those things that the, the far, far country could distract him with. Recreation, sports, entertainment, all the things that actually distract us from prioritizing ourselves with God. So now he comes to this moment. How is he going to react when he's run out of money? He's now in want. Well, here's what it says next. So he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, if you're a Jewish young man, a pig is unkosher and unclean. And your job now is to feed the unclean. And he would gladly, notice the word would, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. But no one gave him anything. He wished he could eat the slop, but no one gave him the slop. And here's the question. How good is he going to be at repenting? Here's a question for you. How good are you at repenting? Let me define repenting. Can you say to another human being or to God something that entails these four things? I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? What else could I do to keep from it happening again? Has anything like that ever come out of your mouth? Because most people have never been trained to repent in a marriage, in a family, in a company. I was wrong. I'm sorry. It's empathy. Will you forgive me? Humility. And what could I do to keep this from happening again? Accountability. That's repentance. There's a lot of things that look like repentance, but we are so much better at repackaging what happens or rationalizing what happens than we are repenting. And I want to propose to you that the younger brother never repents. Maybe not how you've heard the story before, but I'm going to build the case here in just a few minutes that he didn't repent at all. He just repackages himself. It looks like repentance, but it's not repentance. See, I think he's been scheming his whole life. He schemed his dad to get what he really wanted, money. And now his scheming has run out. His friends will no longer help. Even the guy he's working for won't even feed him when he feeds his pigs. No one gives him anything. And he realizes the anything he needs now is about survival. And he's got to find a new scheme to get what he needs just to survive. So what happens next? When he came to himself, well, that sounds like repentance, or he came to realize this isn't working, I need to try a new scheme, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? 
Even the people who work for dad live better than I do. But notice here. If he came to himself, repentance would be him reflecting on what he has done. But what he's really focused on is still what he needs. Repentance would be, oh, I broke my father's heart. Look at all the people I put out of business with my demands. Look at the ways in which I'm outside of God's will, the way I've lived. But instead he's like, you know what? I've lowered my standards. <laughs> I'll say that. I did want inheritance. I spent all that. Now I just want a meal. But it still just wants something for himself. So I don't think it's repentance. It's just repackaging. It's just a new way to get what he needs. So he comes to himself and realizes he needs a new scheme. Because if he doesn't, he's going to perish with hunger. And then he gives this speech. And this speech sounds a lot like repentance. But I think Jesus words this speech in a very specific way to give you a hint that it's not. Now keep in mind he's Jewish. So the Jewish community so upheld the name of God they wouldn't speak it out loud. So the Jewish son is going to replace the name of God with heaven. That's going to be important, I think, in Jesus' comparison to another prayer from the Old Testament. Here's what he says. I will arise and go to my father. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That sounds like repentance. It does. Or it sounds like a really good packaging of a way to get something out of your dad. And then he goes on, he says, now I'm going to mention too that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've got to admit, I did do something wrong. Make me like one of your hired servants. All right, that, that speech should get me some bread. Now this part of the speech, I've sinned against heaven and before you, is almost the exact speech that Pharaoh gives Moses in the book of Exodus. Now, where the prodigal son says, I've sinned against heaven and before you, but keep in mind he would have replaced God's name with heaven because he respected God's name, Here's what Pharaoh says to Moses. Let me remind you of the story. Plague, 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 plague. Will you let my people go? No, 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 no. Plague's getting really bad. Moses shows up after many, many plagues. Says, Pharaoh, come on. Will you relent? Will you let my people go? And the pain is so bad for Pharaoh that Pharaoh says to Moses, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Almost the exact same speech. Minus mentioning God's name. If you don't remember what happens, God turns off the faucet of the plague. The consequences go away for a moment. And what happens to Pharaoh? Ah, no longer can you go away. He wasn't really repentant that he'd sinned before the Lord God and that he kept these people in bondage for 400 years. He just wanted out of the pain of the plague. And he immediately went back to his own way. Pharaoh just repackaged to look like repentance, but his heart hadn't changed. And I think that's why Jesus words this prayer the way he does to show us that this kid is just scheming again like he always has. Now, how often have you repackaged yourself to look or to say what some, you knew somebody wanted to hear, but it wasn't genuine in your heart? I found myself in the middle of a prayer sometimes, like, God... What did I just say for the last few minutes? I'm just sort of going through rote words, but it's not genuine from my heart. God, I'm sorry. Let me tell you what's really going on. Do you know how to repent? Do you practice repentance? 
And many, for many, like this prodigal son, he's like, well, you know what? All right. If I can just get bread, that's all I need. That's all I want. If I can just get my dad to give me the, the basic essentials of life, then maybe I could survive. And so he starts practicing. But he knows his dad won't accept him. He knows his dad won't receive him. He knows his dad has disowned him for what he's done, and rightfully so. But what we're going to find is just like the younger brother isn't out there, he's in here. This Jewish father is not brooding over there. He's running right here. This Jewish father, that everything about that culture and everything about that time would say he should be brooding and angry way over there, keep your distance, never want to see you again. Instead, he is running here to the prodigal son. Prodigal son's rehearsing his speech. Okay, I'm going to say, no longer worthy to be called your son. And then I'm going to sin against heaven, heaven against you. And as he's a long way off, he can see his dad's farm. He can see his dad's house. Still a long way off. He's kind of moving tentatively toward the home. And the camera shifts. And the camera shows us now what's going on with the father who isn't sitting at home brooding. In fact, he's on the edge of the property looking as if he does this every day. As if every day he waits and looks on the horizon. But he's been doing this for weeks, months, maybe years, we don't know. But he is actively searching for the son that is lost. Just, just a hope, just an inclination that his son may come back. And sure enough, he sees his son on the horizon. And this father pulls up his tunic. And the Jewish culture, a man did not run. In fact, there's only one other example in the Bible of a father, a Jewish father running, and that's Abraham, pulls up his tunic and runs to meet the angels that tell of a promised child called Isaac named Laughter in their life, of which Isaac will then slaughter a fatted cow to love on and be generous to strangers. And Jesus has that same image of this father who against all cultural norms pulls up his tunic and runs, 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 captures his son before he says a word, throws his arms around him, has compassion on him, kisses him. My son is found, my son is found. That God comes to us when we can't come to him. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a long way off, Still hadn't made it to God. Still hadn't made it all the way home. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And let me hold there before I get to verse 21. And there are many commentators who suggest that one of the reasons the father ran to the son was to protect him. Because if he came into town, people knowing what he did to his dad, he could have been stoned or killed or destroyed by his younger brother, by his older brother, by the town elders. It would have been totally appropriate, based on Deuteronomy, to have a capital offense to this young man for what he had done to his dad. So one of the reasons the father runs to him is to actually protect him from the consequences of the people who weren't going to receive him. The dad's heart for him, to love him, to care for him, to receive him. And then... After he's been received, after the father has kissed him, after the father has found him, then the son gets to use his speech. It wasn't speech, then I'm received. It was I'm received, then speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I don't know here if he's even beginning to feel real repentance or just the speech to get some food. But he's going to find a father who's not just going to give him the scraps 
Oh, well, here's a meal and you can eat like the people who work for me. No, you're still a son. Here's what he says. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. My son's given me his worst, taken everything, wishing I was dead. But when I get the worst from my son, I'm going to give my best. The best robe on his feet, a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Let's celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry, merry, merry. As the story continues, we're going to find this is not a story of a prodigal son. It's a story of two prodigal sons, both of which the father has to run out to. He's got to run out to the rebellious son who's trying to scheme him out of some more stuff. He's got to come and meet him before he faces new consequences. Then we're going to find a religious son who's equally disconnected from the father's heart. He's not celebrating. He can't be merry. I can't believe my brother after all he's done and he's still manipulating dad and dad's still letting him get away with it. Storms out of the house, as we'll see next week. He's just huffing and puffing. Why? Because he knows better than the father what you should and shouldn't do. Oh, that's exactly what the rebellious son did. He knows better than the father how he should or shouldn't spend his money. He shouldn't be running this farm. He should be giving me what I deserve. I know better what God should do, and I'm going to use it in rebellion. I know better than my father how he should be spending his fatted cow after his son has already taken half his worth. Two flavors of the same problem. Neither son knows the heart of the father. Neither one is connected to the joy of the father. And the father has to go to both, one lost in rebellion, one lost in religion, that they would both be found. As a younger brother in all of us, and the only way to find the power of the gospel is to do both. You need to find the younger brother who lives in you, and you need to find the Jewish father who loves on you. When you find the younger brother who lives in you, It's going to bring deep, deep humility in your life that's going to save you from self-righteousness. And when you find the Jewish father who loves on you, you're going to find something that's more important than anything else in your life, even the good things. And yet that's going to take all of us becoming repentant about our younger brother so that we can discover the grace of God. I had a friend who lived a couple states over who uh, several years ago I'd heard rumors that he had been being unfaithful to his wife and that uh, things were falling apart, but we disconnected for a while, hadn't had a chance to talk to him. Well, things were kind of coming to a close. Divorce was finalized, the sort of rumors of a girlfriend and maybe uh, a marriage proposal. And, and so I get the phone call. Hey, Chad, I haven't talked in a while. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, you may have heard some of the rumors. Yeah, I hear a lot of rumors about a lot of things. What's going on? Well, you know, there's been some good, some bad, and some ugly. Hmm. I felt like, that sounds like a talking point. Let me tell you what happened. Yeah, I did some bad things, and mostly it wasn't my fault, and mostly nothing else I could do. I tried really hard, but this is the ultimate consequence of that. Talking point, too. And you know, thank goodness in the middle of that, God's still got plans for me, and God wants me to do this. I really feel like I'm walking in God's will now. Hmm. Talking point three. It was amazing in this 10-minute conversation that I thought, oh my goodness, this friend of mine believes what he's saying. 
And then I went, oh my goodness, he thinks he's convincing me. I don't believe 90% of this. And I realized this is somebody who spent his life in business selling talking points and packaging himself. And he thinks he's packaging it to me. Hmm. Here's the thing about being a pastor. We may not be business experts or marketing experts, but I'll tell you this, we're behavioral experts. 25 years, we get to watch people do the most horrific things to people they love and totally be in denial about it. We have a front row seat to that for 25 years. We got a BS meter as pastors that is high, high, high. And this was BS. I'm like, well, are you open to some feedback? No, no, I think I got it handled. I bet you do. Are you open to my perspective on this? No, 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 I'm fine. And in that moment, you know what I thought to myself? What's wrong with him? And then it hit me. Oh, this is somebody smart. This is somebody who loved Jesus. This is somebody who knew the Bible. If this could happen to him, this could happen to me. And I remember getting off the phone that day and said, God, rescue me from my own wicked self. My own ability to repackage and reword and reconvince myself of things that aren't true. God, help me see the younger brother in me so I don't go down that path. And God, help me find a father who loves me enough to not only receive me, but also tell me when I'm off the path, when I'm going the wrong direction, when I'm broken. Because that's the kind of Jewish father we have. He loves us unconditionally, and he loves us too much to give us over to our idols. And when you do that, you're going to be able to walk in grace and truth and discover the power of what really matters in life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful story of what it means to be lost and found, what it means to be in your will, what it means to humbly receive what you've given us and go and search for others who need it as well. And through all this, Father, we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Help us not to use you to get what we really want, but to love you for who you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. We'll continue with the second part of the story next week.